Thank you, Lord, for providing for us your word. We praise you and thank you, Lord, that you don't leave us clueless. You don't leave us without your direction. You don't leave us without wonderful stories that talk about who you are and what you want for us. We pray that you enlighten us at this time, that you anoint Michael to teach and uh, reveal things to us, um, that we would all be edified and that he'd be blessed as well. In Yeshua's name. Amen. Thank you. <clears throat> so we've been looking um, through this series on the heroes of Acts, and I thought it was kind of a good point to establish what is a hero? What is what is the definition of a hero? Because we have stars, we have athletes, we have personalities, and we could even call them characters at times that don't act like heroes, and yet they're lifted up as heroes. Or we sometimes think, boy, this person should be better because they're quote, a hero, or they're looked up as a hero, or a role model, whatever you want to call. And so I decided to put a definition, a couple, a few definitions. Um, one of them is an illustrious person. In other words, a person that can get things done, a person who's able to be used as an illustration of getting things done. A person, um, a person who is to be exalted after his death, and he was even exalted among the gods at times, they used to say. And you see that within the Greek style of things. But we've also seen a couple of our heroes that we've looked at here in the book of Acts. We looked at Stephen, and we looked at uh, James, Yeshua's brother, who were both martyred. And um, we talked about that in a sense. A martyr was someone who, in Jewish idea, someone who sanctified the name. It was the idea that that person was actually uh, giving God his highest honor by his death of being killed or persecuted for the Lord. Then we have a person who distinguishes himself through valor or through enterprise. And I like this definition for a lot of reasons uh, because I feel like sometimes this is what sometimes a, a, a more common hero does or even maybe... A hero here at Yeshua Tzion, because maybe they're willing to get down in there and do the stuff that no one else is willing to do. And a hero can at times be someone who suffers, or he can be the central person or persons in any type of poem or type of presentation. Someone who, in which the actions are trans, um, the, the actions come about, how the actions are in a sense translated, or how the actions come to be, and all these different things are representative of what heroes do. And like I was saying, the principles share in a transaction, someone who makes something occur. And I like that because in many of the ways of what we'll look at Barnabas tonight, he represents that. He represents someone who shared in making a transaction in an event or in an activity, or in the story that really highlighted what he was doing and who he was. And I don't know, has anyone ever heard a study about Barnabas or studied much about Barnabas? Because he's an interesting character in the, in the scriptures, in the New Testament. 
And I don't know if anybody's really done that. And, and, and so maybe tonight you're going to learn more than what you ever wanted to know about Barnabas. It's unanimous. It's, it's unanimous. But Barnabas had a big influence and was one of the doers behind the scenes. And I, I really like what Barnabas does throughout the scriptures. And to me, when I read about him, he is a hero to me because he does many things in the sense of an eclectic type person. He's just willing to, to, he was gifted in so many areas that he was able to do different things. And it's kind of exciting to look at who he was and what he did. And so um, I, I like to start with simply the first mention principle. Now there's an idea in both scripture and sometimes in teaching, I hope this marker works, called the first mention principle. Has anyone ever heard of that? The first mention principle? Well, the first mention principle is when you see a word in the scripture or when you look at somebody in the scripture, you go to the first place they're mentioned and you look at what they did or what or how that word is used. Because in Hebrew and in Greek, we have all kinds of words that are used in all kinds of ways. And a lot of times, if you go back to the very first point, and see how the word is used, you can see a lot of understanding. And this is true of Barnabas. Let's look at him in the quote first mention. So if you turn to Acts chapter 4, Acts chapter 4 and verses 31 to 37. And Judy, when you get it, you're welcome to read. Okay. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. All the believers were in one heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Yeshua, and much grace was upon them all. There were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as he had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles, apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Okay. So this is the first point in which Barnabas appears. And this is an important moment within what's taking place among the congregations because this point, Peter and both Peter and John had gone before the Sanhedrin and they had boldly spoken saying, it's more important for us to obey God than to obey you. And we saw that the Spirit came upon everybody. And what happened as a result of that? A ton of people got saved. A lot of people got saved. That's true. But specifically, what in the text says is happening? <laughs> well, it said that the place where they were all staying was shaken. It was physically shaken. <laughs> I think if we experienced an earthquake in some form or or way, we would remember that. We would remember, and not only that, when that happened, 
we saw a greater measure of unity within people. So we see the unity, we see God's power coming out, and then what comes out of the people as a result of this? Spoke the word of God boldly. They had encouragement to speak boldly. What else happened? And this is this is specifically true of Barnabas. They shared everything. They were generous. Now, as a Levite, do you think Barnabas had much? You wouldn't expect him to. You wouldn't expect him to own land. No, because what does the Torah tell us about Levites? The Levites don't own land. Who is the Lord? Who is the Levites' inheritance? I almost said it myself, but. The inheritance of the Levites was the Lord. It was the Lord. But what he has here is what he's willing to give. And Joseph, which his name means somebody who God has added to, or the idea of Barnabas, the son of encouragement, or it can also mean the son of comfort, someone who's a great comforter. And so these are the things that we're seeing in Barnabas. Now I want to look at 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 9, verse 6. Because this tells us more about the person of Barnabas. 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 6. Just one little verse. And in the background here, Paul is talking about taking care of those who are ministering within the congregation. Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to not work? Okay. What is this talking about? Because Barnabas here is... Barnabas works. In other words, Paul is saying, we could impose on you that we should be also given from you all, but we're not looking to get from you. He goes on to tell him, we want you, not necessarily what you have. But he was also saying that people are to supply for those who labor within them. But what is this saying about Barnabas? Any idea? If Barnabas works, what does that say about him? He doesn't expect anybody to take care of him. He expects to... Uh so in many ways, he is self-sufficient. He's self-sufficient. And there are, I mean, we're blessed at our congregation to support our rabbis, but not every congregation can do that. And so at times, they, the, the rabbi has to be self-sufficient. He has to be able to supply for himself. And that's kind of what Barnabas also was willing to do. What else does it tell about him if he's self-sufficient? Well, it tells something that maybe he's a hard worker to me. That he's someone who's willing to get in there and work. He has some kind of skill. He's gifted. He's very gifted. And that's important because a lot of times people come to the congregation, and they don't understand the way that God has used them in the natural world, 
that God also wants to use their natural giftings as well as empower them with spiritual giftings. God can use both our natural giftings and our supernatural giftings. But Barnabas was definitely gifted, he was self-sufficient, and he had to be a hard worker if he was able to do some of the things that it tells us he does in Scripture. And that's not easy to do. That's not easy to do. And to me, that makes someone like that a hero, when they're willing to put themselves out there and to do those kinds of things. Okay, now this is kind of a big one. And Paul, if you would read for us Acts chapter 9, verses 18 to 30. It probably belongs better on the floor anyway. It's going to probably, I have a feeling I'm just going to end up knocking over. But for, um, so this is Acts chapter 9 and verses 18 to 30. This is kind of a big chunk, but I kind of, as I was, I was kind of looking at this thinking, this is kind of a big passage. Should I really have them read this? And as I reread through it again, I thought there was a lot that was explained here. But this is uh, shortly after Paul comes to the Lord, and we see that Paul is being healed in this passage. Right, Acts 9, beginning at verse 18. And going to verse 30, yes. All right. In that moment, something like scales fell away from Shul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was immersed. Then he ate some food and regained his strength. Shul spent some time with the Toledim and Demetus, and immediately he began proclaiming in the synagogues that Yeshua is the Son of God. All who heard him were amazed. They asked, isn't he the man who in Jerusalem was trying to destroy the people who call on his name, on this name. In fact, isn't that why he came here to arrest them and bring them back to the head of the Kohanim? But Shaul was being filled with more and more power and was creating an uproar among the Jews living in Damethek with the proofs that Yeshua is the Messiah. Quite some time later, the non-believing Jews gathered together and made plans to kill him. But their plot became known to Shaul, and they were watching the gates day and night in order to do away with him. But under the cover of night, his Talmud took him and led him down over the city wall, lowering him in a large basket. On reaching Jerusalem, he tried to join the Talmudim, but they were all afraid of him. They didn't believe he was a Talmud. However, Bar Nabea got hold of him and took him to the emissaries. He took them to Shaul had them the Lord while traveling, that the Lord had spoken to him, and how in Demetrius, Shaul had spoken out boldly in the name of Yeshua. So he remained with them and went all over Jerusalem, continuing to speak out boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and debated with the Greek-speaking Jews, but they began making attempts to kill him. When the brothers learned of it, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him away to Tarsus. Okay, a lot of things happening in this passage. And maybe Rabbi Haim, because next week he's going to be talking about Paul, Shaul, and the different things that Shaul was going through. Maybe he'll look more deeply into this passage. But this particular part, I want to focus on Barnabas. What is so great about Barnabas in this passage? What did Barnabas do that no one else did? He took him in and brought him to the emissaries. Showed faith in. Showed a lot of faith. 
And at that time, what was Paul known for? Someone that was killing people and bringing them... Go ahead, Art, I'm sorry. He was persecuting the, the believers. So this took a, dis, a, a, a definite amount of boldness by Barnabas to come in a situation where everybody looks at this guy and is afraid of him. And to me, I think it speaks of what Barnabas had some kind of insight about what Paul was about. Why did he? Why was he insightful? The text kind of tells us. Because he witnessed what what he was doing. He witnessed how he spoke. He witnessed how he spoke in the synagogue. And it's interesting. Was that a believing synagogue? Paul was speaking at. No. No. This would have been an unbelieving synagogue. So not only was Paul bold enough to be there, but Barnabas was even there. And in this way, I like to think of Barnabas even at a point and think he's a lot like a pioneer. He's willing to step out and do some things that no one else had done before. The Jews were starting to, at least the believers I should say, were willing to go to the synagogues and still do the normal things that they did. And they were willing to hear what people had to say. But Paul here is willing to go and speak out and Barnabas was there willing to hear him, and he takes him to the emissaries. And I think that really makes Barnabas a true hero by definition, because he shares in the transaction of bringing Paul to the emissaries. It's an important event. Had he not done that, we don't know if we would have the amount of information, and we wouldn't even know if Paul would have taken off to have the ministry that Paul had. And I, I asked myself that times, who are the heroes in my own life that have made a difference for me, that have brought me along in order that I might know things and that I might be brought farther along in the Lord? Because each of us has those people that have, that have come. And I haven't put a lot of notes down on your notes, per se, because I wanted you to be able to write things down here. And at this point, maybe that's something you want to write down, is who's the person in my own life who's been like a Barnabas when everybody didn't think much of me, was willing to stand in faith with me or not give up on me? And everybody has those people. Maybe it's not someone that's really... Uh, dynamic like a Barnabas, but there are people that have made a difference in their lives. And I like that specifically about Barnabas, about what he did. Okay, this last one, before we get into the next section, talks specifically how uh, Barnabas was starting something in Antioch, and it's Acts 11, 22-30. And Art, if you have that, Acts chapter 11, verses 22 to 30. Then tidings of these things came unto the ears of the church, which was in Jerusalem. And they sent forth Barnabas, that he should go as far as Antioch. Who when he came, and had seen the grace of God, was glad and exhorted them 
all that with purpose of heart they would cleave unto the Lord. For he was a good man, and full of the Holy Ghost, and of faith, and much people were added unto the Lord. Then departed Barnabas to Tarsus, for to seek Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him unto Antioch. And it came to pass that a whole year they assembled themselves with the church and taught much people. And the disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. And in those days came prophets from Jerusalem unto Antioch. And there stood up one of them named Agabus, and signified by the Spirit that there should be great dread throughout all of the world which came to pass in the days of Claudius Caesar. Then the disciples, every man, according to his ability, determined to send relief unto the brethren which dwelt in Judea, which also they did, and sent it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Okay, so we have a number of things happening here. What is the first thing that happens as Paul and Barnabas come to Antioch? What is the first thing they do? Well, it looks like they started some sort of an assembly. They started meeting. So they assembled all the people, as it says. And they started meeting regularly. And in a sense, they began to build this congregation at Antioch. In many ways, Barnabas was a builder here. And I think one of the, some of the gifts we see him having is that of an organizer and an administrator. Do you know we have these functions also working at Yeshua Tzion? That we have people that organize things, that take counts of, for example, when we're going to have an oneg, how many plates there are, or how many napkins there are. We have people that administrate, that make sure that the bulletin gets done. All these different things. Yet Barnabas has these skills too, because he organize, helped organize and build the congregation at Antioch, and he also began to be entrusted with taking relief to Jerusalem. That was a big enterprise in which he was undertaking. And in the second part, in part two of the notes, we see that Barnabas then starts his missionary journey, his missionary journeys with Paul. That was no easy feat. That was a big deal to go and get Paul and to start a congregation. But the Spirit was leading him to do that. And it's the same thing that each of us have too. Was The Spirit at times is going to put what seems like to us an impossible task. and But yet he somehow makes it happen. He somehow gives us the ability to persevere, to get things done. And that was what Barnabas, a lot of his life was about. How he continually persevered and was given, it seems like, difficult and difficult tasks one after another. Now we'll see more of what Barnabas was like when we get into Acts chapter 
13, or I'm sorry, Acts chapter 12, and if we look at verses 24 to 35. And Jeff, if you have that. Okay, 12 uh, verse through 25. Verses 24 to 35. No, you there is no 35. There is no 34 to... Oh, I'm sorry. It was... 13. Yeah. I think that's what I brailed wrong here. 13.5. Yes. 13. Okay. 5. My bad. <laughs> okay. Uh, so tell me the range again. 13.5. Starting at chapter 24. 12.24 to 13.5. Oh, gotcha. Okay. Here My bad. <laughs> But the word of God kept on growing and multiplying. And Barnabas and Saul returned to Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their service, taking along John, who was also called Mark. Now in the Antioch community there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius the Cyrenian, Manaean, brought up since childhood with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were serving the Lord and fasting, the Ruach HaKodesh said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting, praying, and laying hands on them, they sent them off. So sent out by the Ruach HaKodesh, they were sent down, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they began to proclaim the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. They also had John as a helper. Okay. There's a lot that you can glean from here. What are some of the things that you see about Barnabas? What is he doing? Well, he's included in the list of prophets and teachers. So he's a teacher. Okay. He was set apart for a special purpose. Set apart? How did that happen? Did it just happen that he was, you know, one day he was set apart, or? It says the Spirit said so. The Spirit said so. And one of the things that I think that's underlying here that isn't talked about, but he's in a community. A lot of times... Some people don't understand, even though he's returning from Jerusalem with the gift that they took from the previous chapter, in order for people to get assigned and set apart like this, one of the things that happens is they have to be connected to a community. And so he's being given authority. The laying on of hands, always, always in the Bible which my charismatic brothers may not be happy with me for saying this, but many times over and over again is always connected with authority and the transferring of authority. We see that with Moses and Joshua. We see that with Paul and Timothy. We see that with Yeshua and his disciples. The laying on of hands was the idea that you were giving authority to someone to get something done. And that doesn't happen unless you're connected to a community. And we saw not only did Barnabas start this community, but he was in the community, he was doing things within the community. What else was he doing? Well, these are two of the biggest that caught my eye. 
He's worshiping. And fasting, which implies what? Praying. Praying. He was an intercessor. Some people think that's what you do before you do the real work. But praying is the real work. Things don't happen unless people pray. And though he was a teacher and he was set apart and he had a community, and I didn't write this down, but he had the authority, an authority to go forth and be an emissary, that's kind of important because he first started being simply someone who is willing to worship and pray. Many times those are the things people don't want to do. They're like, let's hurry up and get through the worship so we can get to the Word. Or let's hurry up and get through praying so we can get to the rest of the service. But those are a huge part of who they are, of being a prayer, a worshiper, someone who's set apart. All these different things have to happen first and foremost before you just jump to being an apostle, being someone who's a teacher. And there are a lot of people that want to come in and just teach right away. But that's not how things should be done in a community. If anything, the teaching should be seen as precious. And I take it as a privilege when I'm asked to teach. It's not something that everyone gets to do, but it's something that's a blessing and it's a precious thing that we hold God's Word and that we show people what's in it. And it's an important piece of the thing. It's not just a matter of we're getting up here and we just are going to have a flim-flam thing. We take time. We pray before we bring any message. And I was really blessed that Rabbi Haim allowed me to, in a sense, instead of telling me which hero I wanted to pick, I was able to say, hey, Rabbi Haim, can we look at Barnabas? Because he's got a great life. He's got all these different things. Okay, the next passage is Acts 14, 21 to 28. Will you read that? Sure. And when they had preached the gospel to that city and had taught many, they returned again to Dystra and to Iconium and Antioch, confirming the souls of the disciples and exhorting them to continue in the faith, and that we must, through much tribulation, enter into the kingdom of God. And when they had ordained them elders in every church and had prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord on whom they believed. And after they had passed through Pisidia, they came to Pamphylia, and when they had preached the word in Perga, they came, they went down into Attilia, and then sailed to Antioch, from whence they had been recommended to the grace of God for the work which they fulfilled. Okay. So here we see them doing more things that are even beyond what some of us even know. I mean, to be able to ordain people, to be able to equip people to start doing work, to be able to in a, putting your faith and trusting people, all these are at work here. What else do you see? I mean, it's one thing for me to see things, but I want to know what other people see in these passages when they read them. 
What do you see about Barnabas doing here? He explained, uh, or they explained to the believers that uh, suffering and persecutions are part of entering into the kingdom of God or living this life. Okay. Why is that a big piece of our belief system? Well, if you don't know that or don't expect it, you might think, this is all wrong. Something's happening. Something's going wrong here. But that may actually be a sign something's going right. Very good. That's um, a whole nother message in and of itself because persecution and suffering, a lot of times people don't look at that as fruit. The fruit of doing righteousness. The fruit of obeying the Lord. Those are sometimes things that grow into our lives or come into our lives because we've done the right thing. And those are the things people don't like to talk about. But those are part of how we're built up in the Lord. And one thing over and over again that I've learned from suffering is suffering, as the scripture says, is to be a means for obedience. The way we come to learn and obey God. And this is emphasized a couple times in the book of Hebrews, in chapter 5 and in chapter 12. That Messiah himself learned obedience by the things he suffered. And that shouldn't we give into the Father himself, even though we've had uh, earthly fathers that have disciplined us, shouldn't we give into what our Heavenly Father, when he disciplines us? And so over and over again, it, and it tells him, the words are, don't despise the chastening or the, the, the punishing of the Lord at times. And so those are the fruits that sometimes work into our life because everybody likes the idea of the fruit. And I think sometimes uh, persecution and suffering, those can be like the ugly fruits that no one wants to eat or no one likes. Like there's a stinky fruit or maybe it's a prune that nobody likes to eat or raisins that kind of look gross and people are like, I don't want to eat those, but... That's kind of the good fruits sometimes our body needs or the good vegetables that at times we maybe should be eating the most of because it does good stuff for us. But yet those are the things, you know, we want all the glamorous stuff and not all the harder stuff at times. So it's important that people understand. Now Barnabas had his struggles and his shortcomings too. And we talked about one of those passages last week when we looked at Galatians 2. But I want to look at Acts chapter 15 and verses 36 to 41. Um, I don't know. I think I've asked everyone to read. Is there anybody else that hasn't read that wants to? I'll read. Okay. 36 to 41. Acts chapter 15. Yes. I got it. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with him John called Mark, but Paul, through best not to take, thought not uh, thought best. <laughs> yeah, sorry about that. Uh, That's okay. So Paul thought best not to take uh, with them one who had uh, withdrawn from them in uh, Pamphylia. Pamphylia. Right. and uh, had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement, so 
so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, and Paul chose Silas and departed. Having been uh, commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord, and he went through Syria and Sicilia, uh, okay. uh, strengthening the churches. So what is the shortcoming that we see here in Barnabas? Wants to do it his way. That's definitely he went his own way. That's definitely I there. Yeah. I wouldn't call that a shortcoming. Right. I, I would say the shortcoming, you know, according to Paul, was was Mark or John. <coughs> John called Mark because it, he he took off on them. Now maybe he had a good reason, and and Barnabas accepted that, and Paul didn't. Okay, okay, good good job. Others respective. Okay. What, but it's not that he went his own way in a sense of just I'm doing what I want to do, but he went his own way despite the conflict, I would say. And that's kind of a tricky one at times because sometimes it is best to take a step back and let things cool off when we're in conflict with someone. And other times, it's best to get in there and try to work things out. But for whatever reason, they didn't work things out. And I noticed an interesting question here too. Who had the blessing of the brothers? Now I'm not saying that Barnabas didn't in taking John and going to Cyprus, but it does clearly say here that Paul though, in his departure, had the blessing of the brothers. And so I'm going to also challenge that in the sense of there might have been something here of Barnabas doing and deciding just to do things his own way. Maybe, maybe not. I mean, I don't know all the details. We don't know why Mark left. And later we find out more about the relationship of Mark and Barnabas. If, if you look down at the next section, it gets into that. The other section we read from last week about Galatians, where Paul got in Peter's face, as you know, and it said that Barnabas went along with the same hypocrisy of Peter. Does everyone understand that passage, or do we should we look at that again? Galatians 2. Okay. Let's look at Galatians 2, and we're going to look at verses 7 to 10. And Judy, when you have that? Sure. On the contrary, they saw that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the Gentiles, just as Peter had been to the Jews. For God, who was at work in the ministry of Peter as an apostle to the Jews, was also at work in my ministry as an apostle to the Gentiles. Uh, how far am I supposed to go to? To ten. James, Peter, and John, those reputed to be pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. I think I have the wrong verses then. I think we need to go a little bit further down. Well, I wasn't done yet. Oh, you're, oh I'm sorry. <laughs> they, I just took a breath. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the Jews. 
All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor and the very, the very thing that I was eager to do. Okay, I'm sorry. It's the next section. I think it's 11 to 16. Okay. <clears throat> when Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he was clearly in the wrong. Before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles, but when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in the hypocrisy, so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. Keep going? No, well that's the main, that's the main point about Barnabas, is oh, that okay. he ended up, in a sense, following the crowd, and either didn't understand what was happening or was fearful also of the Jews that were, in a sense, coming with James or the Jews that had been with James, in a sense, because he also went with Peter when Peter separated himself from the other apostles, if that makes sense. So, in other words, they were all sitting down at the table and when a certain group of Jews who maybe people thought were more important to be liked by, they decided, oh, we're not going to sit with the Gentiles because they're probably going to look down on us. And so not only did Peter step away from them, but we also have Barnabas stepping away too. And that's kind of another shortcoming of some of the things that Barnabas struggled with in a sense. And you can see that, you know, when someone does something like that, they're following a crowd and they're not standing up for what is the right issue. And it, or either that or at times, and this is part of also being a crowd follower, is they're scared. They're scared. And I'm not, I'm not sitting here judging anybody. I know that everyone has their fear buttons, and at the time those fear buttons seem legitimate, but for some reason Barnabas decided not to eat with the Gentiles either. Decided not to eat with the Gentiles either. And so these are some of the shortcomings that we see in Barnabas. And this, like Rabbi Ham says, the scripture doesn't look to, in a sense, um, airbrush or take away things when our heroes or people do things that aren't the best judgment. So in conclusion, we can find out a number of things about Barnabas. But the first one I wanted to point to was in Colossians chapter 4. And in verse 10, it's just one verse, but it is it simply reveals why maybe Barnabas specifically stood by Mark. My fellow prisoner Aristarchus sends you his greetings, as does Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. You received instructions about him. If he comes your way, welcome him. So Mark and Barnabas potentially were cousins. And this is another, you know, point of that we can look at and say this could be a strength or it could be a weakness, and that's being faithful to someone, standing by them. Maybe they're wrong when we're standing by them. And at times, I feel like that's an important thing: Are we willing to stand by people and love them when they're not lovable? Plus, he's loyal to his family. And I'm sure family right now is a dirty word. There's lots of reasons why people don't like the word family. Right now, 
there's within people's idea, maybe they feel like they don't have the good enough family. And therefore, all the people that do have good families, they feel like, I can't talk about my family among other people because my family's dysfunctional. My family's messed up. I had a messed up childhood, whatever the case may be. And if I was to tell people when they have good families, it's, it's going to just make their hairs raise up and they're going to think I'm crazy. Or family can be the type of thing where people are saying, everybody's got messed up families. Nobody has a good family out there. And so there's two different ditches. People don't want to talk about families because they can't be like the Brady Bunch or the, the typical great-looking family. Or our family's so dysfunctional, nobody's going to want to look at the family. And so there's both sides of that, that a lot of times family. And here's another one. Sometimes being loyal to family can be a bad thing. It can be a bad thing. Sometimes it can be a good thing. But for whatever reason, Barnabas and Mark were cousins. Maybe that was why he decided to stick by Mark. Because there was something there that he felt strongly about in terms of them being family. And, you know, it's the same thing. A lot of people say sometimes, you know, I'm going to stick by this person even though they're wrong. And that's a hard task line at times to take because a lot of people sometimes say, you know, that person should get out of that situation. That's a bad relationship for them. But for all we know, that's the one light of maybe the Lord bringing into that relationship too. And so it's, it's, it's a tough thing to sometimes look at and say, do you still stick with someone and be faithful? Or do you, you know, do you, you know, cut bait and let them go? It's a tough and it's not an easy answer. Now, we read back in chapter 14 of Acts about Barnabas going to Italy, or I think it was called Italia, as Paul said, or as Art read for us from the King James. And the other side of Barnabas that I feel like is something that is a little bit different, and this is probably conjecture or commentary, because there's a lot of people that don't agree with this for whatever reason. But I think Barnabas was the writer of Hebrews. There's a lot of evidence to suggest because he's a Levite, he's going to know what the temple looks like and the tabernacle because of some of the things he shares. Because a lot of people think this is Paul. But I think it more likely could be Barnabas. Throughout the book, he's over and over trying to encourage the believers, kind of what I believe Barnabas was about. And Paul and Barnabas, throughout the scriptures, had a priority to be encouragers, ministers of comfort. And I'm going to get into the Greek word for this idea of comfort, encouragement, consolation. I hope I have this spelt right. P-A-R-A-K-A-L-E-O. And if I'm saying it right, is parakaleo, which means to call near, to encourage, to comfort, to entreat. And the, the image I get when I study this word is I think about a small child, maybe a toddler or somebody, 
that age, a lot of times when you comfort them, you want to bring them close to you, whether you're picking them up in your arms or a lot of times when you want them to understand something, maybe they're like messing up or maybe they're not paying attention, you want to get near and you want to kind of come down to their level and actually look at them eye to eye so that they know you understand and they understand. And this was a tricky thing for a blind parent too. We actually had to do one more step, which is grab the chin and turn it to the face so that the child knew, I'm talking to you, kind of thing. And in a sense, that's kind of what this word is about. And in many ways, the ministry of comfort and encouraging at times is going to look like that. It's going to look like that. It means getting closer to people. When you struggle and are having a hurt person, that's tough because hurting people tend to be biters or they tend to maybe hit back or whatever. You know, sheep bite, as Rabbi Haim would say. You know, and they're the type of things people don't like to do. But over and over again, when Paul makes a plea, it's the same word, parakleo, in which he makes a strong plea to people. Live the way you're supposed to live. Over and over again. It's the same word. I encourage you. I plead with you. In the King James, I beseech you. Over and over again. The same idea of, I want to encourage people. 1 Thessalonians 5.18. One verse of scripture. Comfort one another with these words. Some versions have it. Encourage one another with these words. And sometimes when we comfort, we are trying to encourage <coughs> It's kind of a double-fold ministry in which we're trying to say, I'm sorry this happened. But at the same time, maybe we're with the one's hand of saying, I'm sorry, we may be saying, things will be better next time. And I'm hoping at times that as encouragement and comfort comes, because that's a central theme in Paul's letters and in the book of Hebrews, mentioned six times to encourage, it's meant to do something. Encouragement and comfort is also meant to fan the flames of hope. What is hope? And I'm not talking about a person. What is hope? Looking forward to things in the future. Looking forward to something in the future. Not only is hope that, but hope is also a conviction. Hope is a conviction in times that when we look forward to something in the future, we make a conviction about it. We actually wait for it. We actually prepare ourselves for it. We live like it's going to happen. And that's kind of an important thing about both comfort and encouragement. It always seems to fan a flame of hope. And sometimes hope is also expressed in the idea of confidence or expectation. Expectation is something wonderful, right? Sometimes we have expectation when we come to the feasts or we have expectation um, you know on that on that non-Jewish holiday Christmas 
Or maybe we have expectation from a birthday or a wedding or something important that's happening in our life. But Messiah's return is something that we hope, that we're confident about, and we have expectation for. And because of those things, we should have conviction and we should have the willingness to live our life differently from the way the rest of the world lives their life. And that's kind of why encouragement is important because everybody at some level needs encouragement in their faith or in their hope walk with God. Hope is kind of something that grows in you as time goes by. It's another one of those both gifts and fruits. It's something that can grow in us. Sometimes we know it more as the ugly word, patience. Are we willing to wait and be patient? But that's kind of what Barnabas wanted to be, as I think, as the writer of Hebrews. And we want to look at that passage at the very end. Uh, Steve, if you would turn to it in Hebrews 13, the end of the book, in which Barnabas, I believe, is making word here. Maybe it's Paul. Maybe it's the third person. Um, and I believe it's Hebrews. I mean Hebrews 13. Six. Uh, no, it's actually 18 to 22. Pray for us, for we are convinced that we have a clear conscience, desiring to conduct ourselves honorably in all things. I especially urge you to do this, so that I may be restored to you sooner. Now may the God of Shalom, who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of an everlasting covenant, our Lord Yeshua, make you complete in every good thing to do his will, accomplishing in us what is pleasing in his sight through Messiah Yeshua. And to him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. So, at this point, and I thought I had Timothy in there in that particular passage. Oh yeah, I, I stopped too soon. But I urge you, brothers oh. and sisters, listen patiently to this word of ex exhortation. For in fact, I have written to you in few words. Know that our brother Timothy has been released. If he comes soon, I will visit you with him. So, both from the implications of what I think Barnabas is saying here, it might be Paul, it might be someone else, they say, you know, the Greek in Hebrews is spectacular Greek. I mean, I don't understand that because I'm not a Greek reader. But they're saying it's similar to Luke's Greek. And it's similar to, and a lot of people maybe point to someone like Apollos. Maybe. But here we see that it's someone that knew who Timothy was. Someone who traveled, similar to Barnabas, was a missionary traveled all over, as Judy pointed out, went all the way to Tarsus to get Paul. And in this same passage, I look at the same thing. He's willing to take the time and encourage the people and tell them, if I get out, I'll come to you. Meaning, maybe he's in prison also. But he's still wanting to encourage them, even in his one of his tough, dark hours. And I think that's really why if this is Barnabas, it's an important character to look at because we're also called. And I think Barnabas may have been more of an encourager to Paul than what we know. I mean, I just look at that and think, if this is Barnabas writing this, 
There's a lot we can learn from just what we see in his story in the book of Acts. And so that's kind of what I had. Are there any comments, questions? I think one of the important parts is that uh, Paul and Barnabas opened the doors to the Gentiles. Well, God was definitely empowering them and using them, and it seemed that they were the ones, and, and maybe it's because they worked, maybe it was because they were self-sufficient, I don't know. Maybe it's their natural giftings made them the most appropriate for doing that type of work. That's a, that's a great point. Um, the Spirit was going to do it in the Gentiles, whether they, whether they wanted it or not, and whether the Jews wanted it or not. And sometimes people go along kicking and screaming. But yeah, they definitely were used to bring that about. And I think Barnabas, like I said, Barnabas is a hero to me just because when no one else would go to Paul, he went to Paul. He went to Paul and he got other people listen to what Paul's saying. And sometimes we can be a person like that when no one else is willing to stick by someone else. Any other comments or questions? I was impressed by the fact that he was a Levite because somehow I missed that. All the times I've read these passages, I never noticed it. And that's an important piece because we see Levi specifically brought up in Hebrews chapter 7. Specifically that Abraham paid, in a sense, to when he paid tithes to Melchizedek, that he paid any sense of tithe through Levi when he was still in Abraham's loins, in a sense. Any other comments or questions? Well, we can always end early. That, I know the rabbi might not like that, but it's I mean... It's only two and a half minutes early. Oh, sorry. <laughs> well, three, Please keep all of our leadership in prayer. I bring the word this Shabbat. Um, Haim is traveling. So is are the Grants. They've been traveling to England. So And Joy and Linda Zim both have the ladies' retreat. So each and every person in our leadership team is doing a big endeavor and needs much prayer. So I please ask that you pray for all of our leadership. And Judy, would you close for us in prayer if there aren't any other comments or questions? Well, thank you for this time. Thank you for um, the wonderful stories that you put in your word to encourage us and to see how powerful you are and how the Holy Spirit works in your servants. And we thank you for Michael and the time that he prepared this lesson, and we thank you that we've got new insights into who Barnabas was. Amen. Amen.